Hey, we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge, better understanding, and a clear direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor. Please like, share, and follow Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed. This episode, we have Brad Weinstein with a focus on hacking school discipline. Brad is the director of innovation at Behavior Flip, the world's first restorative software app. He helps keep Behavior Flip on the cutting edge of behavior management through merging research-based best practices and advanced technology. He's the co-author of Hacking School Discipline, Nine Ways to Create a Culture of Empathy and Responsibility in Using Restorative Justice. Brad is the creator of At Teacher Goals, one of the most popular educational accounts in the world on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Brad worked as a director of curriculum and instruction in downtown Indianapolis. He also served as principal for two years on the east side of Indianapolis. Brad is an award-winning teacher who taught for 11 years, including roles as a coach and a STEM department chair. He holds a BA in education from Purdue University and an MED in curriculum and instruction from Indiana Wesleyan University and completed a principal licensure program from Indiana Wesleyan University. Without further ado, Brad Weinstein. Here we are with our guest, Brad Weinstein. Thank you for joining us today on Focus ED, Brad. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, Brad, let's jump right in. You wrote a book called Hacking School Discipline, Nine Ways to Create a Culture of Empathy and Responsibility Using Restorative Justice. Here in Delaware, our live audience is pretty familiar with restorative justice, but we would love to know why you wrote the book, what it's about, and just what it means to have a culture of empathy and responsibility in schools. What, what did you want educators to take away from this work and why is it important? What I realized was that what I was doing before was not working. I went from teaching in the most affluent school district in Indiana to being the high school principal of that borders one of the most crime-ridden zip codes in all of Indiana and even in the nation. So I went and I thought that I was going to just, you know, I was successful as a teacher. So I thought, oh, I'll just go and do the same kind of things I did with my students. And I went to the east side of Indianapolis at a high school. And on the second or third day of school, I saw a girl who was about three or four minutes late and I told her to go back to class and she told me I can go F myself and that's what I realized because I was a 
school didn't really matter to her and to most of the students that I was going to come across that year. And that just because I was an administrator or a person who you know, should have a, some kind of authority, they didn't respect that. So what I realized was that I have to actually connect with these kids before I can correct them. And throughout the time there, I learned a whole lot. I failed a whole lot as a principal. I had a whole lot of interactions that didn't go as planned. And I realized that I had to do something different or it was just going to be a vicious cycle of kids getting thrown out of school, me getting frustrated, teachers getting frustrated. So what we did was I created this spreadsheet because I wanted to know whether or not what I was doing with the students was effective or not. It's one thing to actually give students punishments. Then you see them again in three weeks, then you see them again in two weeks. It's another thing to have data to know, well, if I did this with that kid, did it actually change their behavior? So the very first version of Behavior Flip, which is our app, was just a Google Sheet. And uh, as you can imagine, having 50 teachers all putting data onto a spreadsheet didn't go as planned. So we had a whole bunch of formulas going wrong. Uh, some kids had like 5 million incidents because people put the data in <laughs> value was in and uh, all that kind of stuff. Over, over time, it got a lot better. But what I realized was that I need to not only know if what I'm doing is working, is working, but I need to know how often I'm doing these things with who and which classes are students having the most trouble with and all those kinds of data components. I really got more involved with discipline and trauma-informed practices. It wasn't really, you know, where I came from, there were some kids who had experienced trauma, but it wasn't very many of them. So then when I moved to Indianapolis on the east side, I realized, holy cow, these kids, every kid has a story here. I remember sitting on the sidelines during basketball practice just watching, and the uh, assistant coach went through every single kid and talked about their story and all of their stories were not like mine. So I realized that, wow, I need to be able to understand things more from another perspective to actually connect with these kids. So through my course of time there, I learned a whole lot, but it wasn't until I, I went and became a curriculum director at Purdue Polytechnic High School Network, where it was a very similar population. And I came across a guy named Nathan Maynard, who was my co-author. He saw that I had this spreadsheet that had great data, but he noticed that it wasn't overly restorative. So, you know, it still had detentions on it. It still had suspension on it. It still had call mom and dad on it. Those kinds of things that are more punitive. So what we did was we combined four and he said, you know what, I think we should do an app on the spreadsheet. And I said, yeah, right. I mean, I don't know anyone who can make an app, right? I mean, how many educators do you know have an app? So two months later, he comes in and says, hey, I know a guy I went to Purdue with. I met him at a party. And he says, oh, do this for us. And I still didn't believe him because, you know, that didn't seem like realistic at the time. So at the same time, Mark Barnes, who is the publisher at Times 10, he saw me on Teacher Goals and he saw that the tweets were resonating with quite a few people. He's like, hey, do you want to write a book? And I said, yeah, awesome. I agree. And then I realized about what? I, I had a book deal, but I didn't know what to write about. So then I realized, okay, back to my back to my days as a principal and through working with Nathan, who is a restorative practice pro, I realized that, you know, restorative practice is going to be a little bit rigid. It can be a little bit, you know, there's actually a literal script that you read through the trainings that you go to. And I felt like there was also some missing components that I brought with me as a classroom teacher, because you can be very restorative, but not, and, and you know, you want to seek to understand behaviors, but, you, but when you seek to understand behaviors, you can't really understand those behaviors unless you know about trauma-informed practices. You can't really give kids appropriate consequences or ways to uh, prevent their behaviors in the first place without mindfulness. And I thought, okay, well, growth mindset, it doesn't matter if these kids are getting you know, appropriate consequences if I don't give them a second chance to actually get better and improve their situation. So I took all of those things out there, you know, all the big things in education right now, and I thought, how can we make restorative practices more multi-dimensional? How can we make it more healing or more useful for classroom teachers? Because a lot of times what we would see with restorative practices was that it was only being done in the school office. It was so rigid, there's a script, there's being done with administrators and teachers aren't really involved. So what we decided was 
we're going to write a book from the perspective mostly of the teacher. And I think that's what really resonated with people was the teacher saw that I can do some of the things in my classroom to prevent behaviors from happening in the first place and be more proactive than reactive. That's great. Thank you. I, I want to follow up. If you wouldn't mind, Brad, us circling back to some of the original Google Sheet. Did you find originally that just the attention to the data even started to improve people's awareness and help with consequences as well that led to like greater iterations of the Google Sheet to excel to what we now have is behavior flip. Did you see that experience at first and can you speak to that awareness of just documenting those discipline infractions and so forth? Absolutely. So in a school, typically, the main people who have access to a student's discipline record are the administrators and not the teachers and sometimes not the parents, right? A lot of times, teachers will send a kid down to the office and they'll never know what happened with that kid, so they just assume nothing happened to that kid. So what we found was that once we started talking about data involving behaviors, just as often as we started talking about grades and test scores and those kinds of things, it brought more of a hyper-awareness to behavior that wasn't there before. I was at a high school, so the suggestion for kids who are not behaving was to kick them out of class. Because the quote-unquote, they should know better, right? They are 16 years old, they should know better. The reality is, is that they didn't know better because if they would have known better, they would have been doing better. So what, you know, they don't know better and we just assume when the kids get older, they've all, they've all learned what they're supposed to do by now. And we expect them to be adults, we expect them to be highly functioning and they can just go out and do those or they're choosing not to behave. The reality is, is that a lot of these kids don't have the skill to behave and to, to succeed. So when it came back to the spreadsheet, we started looking at data and realized, wow, we have a whole lot more kids being insubordinate than we thought. We have a whole lot more kids being tardy than we thought. How can we fix this? How can we combat this? How can we help kids do better? So once we had that data, then we realized, well, now we know how many times kids are being tardy. But the question is, who is being tardy, right? So it's just not a matter of what is happening in your school, but are we giving tardies to certain students? Is it mostly male, mostly female? Is it disproportionate when it comes to are we giving our African-American students more insubordinations than our Caucasian students? And the answer to that was an astounding yes. So it's something that everyone thought, but it's something everyone wasn't aware of until we started focusing on it. And, and we didn't really know that until we had the data to actually say, hey, we need some cultural competency around here so we can get this right. Tack on to that a little bit about the cultural competency because the book is about the culture of empathy. Changing culture, creating culture is super hard in, in schools and in school districts, as you know. So it sounds like you went from a culture of kids being sent out of class to a far more restorative culture. Can you give us some of like the interim steps there in changing the mindset, maybe professional development, anything that you did to address, confront, and alter the norms that you were experiencing? Sure. Now, when we were looking at the data, it was just a matter of no one really knew their impact, right? So that'd be like teaching and not having any sort of greater test score or any kind of measure of success. So what we were doing with behaviors was we were just logging things, getting out of class, and we were just doing a whole lot of things and not really knowing a better way. And, you know, we, a, lot, a lot of people didn't know better. They didn't know a better way to actually work with kids than they were doing because that's how they grew up, right? I mean, Whenever they were growing up, this is how I was taught, and it worked out fine for me. And what they don't realize is that you're a teacher and an educator. You probably did well in school, I would assume, right? So you can't just take whatever happened with you, and that's how you can continue to be with all your students because they have a whole lot different background than you, and it's just not quite the same. 
So what we did was we started really looking at, okay, when we look at equity, it's not about giving everyone the same thing. It's not about treating everyone the same way. It's about treating students consistently consistent. And what I mean by that is that one student needs this and another student might need something completely different. So we started talking about, you know, well, what are you doing that's working? What are you doing that's not working? And we started to talk about data and be like, well, the kid keeps on doing the same thing over and over and over again. So then we started talking about, okay, well, what steps did we take to actually combat that behavior? And what, and what it came down to was no one had actually taught that kid how to get to class on time. You wouldn't think that a kid who was 15, you think a kid who was 15 would know how to get from class to class to class, right? But the reality is, is that some kids have a locker that's really messed up and disorganized and they can't find their book to get from one place to another. Some kids are looking at that cute boy or girl in the hallway and you know, that's why they're late, right? Um, whereas other kids, they have to go to the bathroom after third period and they don't know how to go to the bathroom and make it to class on time. There's a million reasons why kids are tardy. So once we started making all these, all the teachers really aware of, you know, there's different reasons, we have to understand why, teachers were like, well, what can we do? I did was, it was more of like a, you know, I, I gave them what was happening and then I put it on them. Okay, what do you think we can do better? So some of the teachers were pretty passionate about doing something different and teachers that were into um, being more culturally responsive. So I let them take the lead and I let them put on some professional development. So just say, hey, we need to do better and not give as many consequences to our African-American students. Because what they would do would be, if that were the case, they just wouldn't log stuff to happen, right? Because they were afraid of the data. So I couldn't just say, hey, go do better. We got to do better at this. We had to actually take it really slow because like you said, it's a really big deal. It's a really big issue when we're talking about equity, when we're talking about culture, all those kinds of things. So we had to start really small. So we couldn't just be like, okay, we're going to become a restorative school tomorrow. So what we started doing was when students started getting in trouble, we would, we would work with a, an organization. We worked with something called Teen Court. So instead of kicking the kid out of school, we would actually send them through Teen Court and they'd have to do some sort of restorative practices through there. And it, and it worked out great. But over time, we were like, okay, what can we do in the classroom? And what can we do in the office that's really gonna make a difference? And eventually over time, it got to the point where we do a few things, it wouldn't work, go back to the drawing board, look at our data, and it didn't work for a while. And we kept on trying, it wouldn't work for a while. Eventually we got to the point where, okay, what if the way that we handle the students when they get in trouble is different? What if we tried something differently? I've heard of this thing called restorative practices. So then we started doing restorative practices with our students. And what we found out was that the students that were the toughest, the students that would you think would cuss you out if you asked them a question, all of a sudden we had meetings where students were crying because we actually touched on something and made them understand something about someone else. And then they all of a sudden, instead of wanting to fight each other, they were best friends walking out of the office. And we're like, wow, we're, we're really honest with them. We're, we're actually taking these kids and instead of punishing them, giving them strategies and opportunities and communication skills so they can solve their own problems. So a long, a long answer to your uh, question is that it needs to be something that is started with data. You need to look at what's happening in your school. You need to assess what's happening in your school to know what kind of training you need. Because some schools are very, some schools that do restorative practices, they need a whole lot of work on circles. Some schools that do restorative practices, they need a whole lot of work on what is the logical and restorative consequence. It's just really something that you need to start really small with. And one of the things that I recommend starting with is a classroom circle. 
So basically, if the kids want to be in your classroom, if the kids want to be in your school, if the kids feel connected with you at your school and they want to be there, you're going to solve most discipline problems right there without any other further intervention. So if I were to start from anywhere, it'd be classroom circles. That's great. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate you walking us through that. I think the key in which you've discussed, though, is the responsiveness. None of us want to go to a doctor that prescribes the same treatment over and over as we display the same ailment. But for some reason, we've kind of lost sight of the original reason for consequences with discipline in the first place, which is that's the deterrent. But if the discipline isn't a deterrent, you're at a loss. Like you said, the young lady just drops the F-bomb on, she could care less. It's no different than the kids constantly late to school. Now they hit our magic number of five lates, so we're gonna send them home for today. Like that, it's completely contradictory of what we're trying to achieve. So there's a lot of power in what you're describing. Let's switch gears a little bit. If you were going to improve the student experience in every school, what would you want to see done? If I were to improve the student experience anywhere, it'd be to listen to them. I feel like students don't have a lot, don't have a voice in most schools or in a lot of schools that I you know that I, I've seen. So we, we prescribe a whole lot to students. We say you need to take these classes in this order and you need to learn these standards in this order. And if this happens to you, you know, this is a consequence you're gonna get. I feel like if we were having customer service, the people that we were trying to help succeed are the students and the people that we ask the fewest amount of times about what we can do to improve and are things going well are the students. So I would say that if students want to be at your school, a whole lot of the other things you're going to do are going to take care of itself, like I said. Like, no one's going to want to be at your school if you have great curriculum but no relationships. No one's going to want to be at your school if you can't connect with me and I don't feel like you care about me as a person and I don't feel listened to. So I would say when students do something, when they get in trouble, or just in general, let them talk. Let them speak. Let them say what's on their mind. And I've gotten some of my best ideas because the students said, hey, it would be great if we could do this. So when students feel like the administration actually hears them and listens to them, and they're not in some kind of oppressive environments um, where you know, they, they, find, they find things that are a lot more fair. So same thing with restorative practices. If, if I actually ask a kid, okay, tell me how you can repair the harm of your action. You know, We talked about how you made Susie feel and you understand now why when you threw that at Susie at recess, why she was so upset because she felt embarrassed because she was crying in front of her friends and that really upset her. So when we say, well, what do you think you can do to repair the harm? Nine times out of 10, that kid will say, well, I didn't realize, I didn't realize um, that it was this big of a deal to you and I apologize. So when you let the students speak and you let the students come up with their own consequences and when you let the students come up and have their voice, the students will apologize most of the time but if I say to a student, okay, you need to apologize to Susie right now and then go back to your class. Susie doesn't take it sincerely. The student doesn't mean it. And then Susie and that kid are going to have a problem tomorrow. Super important, Brad. I mean, what you're talking about is kind of slowing things down a little bit. And I think a lot of times we're racing to get that discipline referral processed. And in doing so, we end up stacking discipline referrals 
And so we just end up responding to discipline when really if we slow it down, we'll have fewer referrals. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it really is the way in which schools can go about changing the student body so that they're not always in a reaction mode, but rather kind of flipping that to a proactive approach. So we really appreciate that. Next question we do have for you, though, is... Do you have a favorite resource as a school leader that supports teaching, learning, leadership in schools? And we're going to give a bunch of your Hacking School Discipline books away here, and we're big fans of the Hacking series. But is there anything else that you would recommend to our audience that you find is a great resource? So when it comes to great resources, I, I, would, I would obviously recommend Behavior Flip as a way to actually track and monitor your restorative practices so you know if what I'm doing is working and we built in, we build in restorative interventions for kids. Beyond that, like that's a tool. You need to have a mindset shift, right? So that's what we tried to get with the book. But something that I found to be extremely useful is a program called The Leader in Me. And I'm sure you've all you've all heard of that program, you know, the, the seven habits of highly effective teens and you know the, those kinds of resources. But I think the leader in me is a great program. And what I find happening is that when we have programs like that, that are fantastic resources and social emotional learning, like second steps curriculum, we tend to do that in elementary school because we feel like those kids need it. But the kids that actually get, when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, you touched on that earlier with the zero tolerance policies that lead to that. The kids that are 13 to 15 years old are the kids who get sent to the juvenile system the most. So if we're talking about our seventh graders through our sophomores, I find that we stop doing social emotional curriculum and we stop doing those kind of resources in elementary school when the kids that actually need them the most, in my opinion, are the middle school kids to early high school kids. Those kids are at the greatest risk of really running into some problems. I would recommend that we don't stop social emotional learning because they're out of elementary school and that we also infuse it into what we're doing every day. So when we talk about restorative practices, it's part of what you do. It's about being empathetic it's about taking situations where students do something wrong and you make it a learning opportunity for them. So social emotional learning and those kinds of components are something you should build into what you do every day. You're not a math teacher, you're not an English teacher, you're not a science teacher, you are a teacher and you're teaching that whole child and you model social emotional learning, you model regulation strategies, you model what to do when you get upset, you tell them how to, you know, you give them help seeking strategies. What do I do when I don't understand a math problem? Well, the first thing you should do is this. And secondly, have you tried that? Long story short is I think that something like the leader in me is fantastic. A consistent language across your school where all teachers and all administrators are referring to terminology like let's put first things first. And everyone knows what that means. So I would recommend having stuff way beyond the elementary years as well. Thank you, Brad. Um, TJ's district is um, a leader and leader in me district. You want to talk about that at all, TJ? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a really good point because we do leader in me in a number of our elementary schools, but it doesn't go much past that. Leader in me has in recent years done a good job of developing those middle school models, but I'm even developing an in-house model for some some type of leadership programming is critically important. So the, the point is well taken that that's a great resource but also that it needs to be in our middle and high schools where it probably is most important as, as they're growing and changing so much. Yeah, they, they just don't get more mature because they age, right? So it's not like, oh, now that you're 12, you're more mature than you were when you were 11. And that's not true at all. A age is just a number. Kids need, kids need things that 
You know, some kids that are 18 need things like kids that are five, you know, and some kids that are five are more mature than kids that are 18. It just depends on who you are and what you need. And we're not giving kids what they need if we assume that all kids of a certain age are all of a sudden responsible, productive citizens. No, it's a great point because it's like as they get bigger in size, our empathy decreases uh-huh. and it, it's almost the opposite. I mean, when they're young, you know, they are often in, in the, the early grades, they have one teacher, they have one individual in their life that looks after them educationally. And then as they get older, they're just spread so thin throughout the system it dramatically impacts them. And then going circling back, Brad, what you originally said about the connection, it's much harder to build those connections, which is why you find, you know, coaches and other odd relationships being developed outside of the classroom and not in in the classroom. Um, But we just look at, you know, them as different, but from an emotional standpoint, they might be incredibly immature, um, which, you know, that is, it's a great point made. Your career path has definitely taken on some turns, and now you're in a, a different lane. You know, for you to continue to think you're making an incredible impact, what does the next three to five years have to look like for you? I've been everywhere from first grade all the way through, um, you know, working, working as a frequent director at a high school network, sending kids to high-tech fields in college. So I have seen the gamut of different opportunities. In a pretty big impact as a teacher, I was able to make a bigger impact as a principal, but I miss the kids, right? Because that's tough, working with kids every day to working with a bunch of kids who you don't see as often. And then the curriculum director spot, I, I saw even less kids. What happened was is that out of nowhere, the book that we wrote took off. Like I, I was happy, you know. We thought, oh wow, it was so cool to see your name on a book. Little did we know that it was going to be on five continents so far and be in the hands of over 80,000 educators in just seven months. Like we never thought that that would happen. So what we found is that there's a whole lot of people experiencing what we were experiencing in our school. There's a whole lot of people that were like, okay, you know, I've read this book, now what? Or we gotta do something different, what can we do? So now what, what I'm doing with my co-author is we're going around the country and we're doing intensive professional development on restorative practices and not just the restorative practices you'll find anywhere, but what can teachers do in the classroom with their students? And we've signed on with this group called the Core Collaborative, which is a uh, global professional development organization. So what we're doing is we're traveling everywhere and we're going to Canada and we're going to several different continents pretty soon. So what my goal is, is that we're doing restorative practices on every continent that there are people, except I don't think Antarctica would be very helpful. But my, my goal is that we see people doing restorative practices in circles, and we have people seeking to understand everywhere. And my, my goal really is that we put our app into the hands of people everywhere as well. I see things on Twitter, and I see people actually posting about our book with their real students. I realize that I am in that school right now helping hundreds of kids in one building instead of, you know, the several hundred kids I had in my building. But like I said, it's tough not being with the kids every day. I get a lot of joy of seeing people doing our stuff. Our app just got in South Korea. We're going international with our app as well. So my goal, honestly, is to continue doing what I'm doing and continue to contribute to the field and continue to write books and provide resources so that kids have a a fair shot and a better opportunity of success. 
That's fantastic. We'll definitely spread the word about the app. This podcast is going to go into production. We have a live audience here who will hear about it, but then just the international and national broadcast will hopefully get that word out there and, and keep on linking to your work from our show notes as well. So thank you for sharing that and great work on that. Is there just, we like to ask educational leaders, especially people who are making a difference like you are all, all around the country and around the world for that matter. Is there somebody outside of education who you look to for inspiration as a resource, as a leader, where you find this new thinking that might influence what the way in which you go about your day to day? Now, when we think outside education, I'm on, I follow way too many people on Twitter that are educators. So I, I look at people who are innovative, like Elon Musk and like people who, you know, this cheddar organization, I, I look at people who are straight out being like, okay, we don't have to do it that way. And in fact, we don't need to. And why are we doing that that, that way? So I like to look at a whole bunch of people who are just pure innovators in their field. Um, I like to look at people like Renee Brown and, you know, I really love her work and I know that she's an educator, but I, I, I predominantly look in my, into my own field when I'm looking at inspiration. But when I, when I don't look into my own field, it is those people that are innovative, creating new ways of doing things. You know, just people who are into neuroscience, like just educators who are, who are teaching students, okay, when you're going into the field, you're not just a teacher. You need to focus on the social and emotional side of things. So those are my personal heroes as people who are getting the teachers before they even get into the field. But besides that, just people who are making a difference and doing things and showing people you don't have to do it that way anymore. Let's do something that works. Brad, as you travel around, our final question, and you see things out there, you speak to educators now on a national and international level. Is, is there a need out there? Is there a book you wish someone would write on a topic that you see as an emerging need? A need that I see is that the adults, that the mindset of the adults is the number one component of student success. Just something written about the fact that you know, I don't think teachers realize that they are the number one resource for student success. They're more important than any other factor going on in that student's life. When you have them in that classroom, you can teach anyone and you can teach anyone. And there are barriers and there are all kinds of reasons why students have trouble learning, but that one teacher can change that kid's life. And it's something that I don't feel like teachers have that power. I don't think they realize their impact. I don't think they realize just how deep their words cut when they say something that, you know, really is harmful to the student, like being sarcastic. So I, I would write a book or find a book out there that's all about the adult mindset in schools and how, you know, you need to have collective teacher efficacy and that all students succeed and that all students can learn and that I can actually help that every kid that I come across. So once you believe that, and that's based on John Hattie's research, right, teacher efficacy, I would write a complete book on teacher efficacy to convince teachers and convince principals that you can actually help any kid learn. And that you are the person you might you don't you don't need these fancy supplies you don't need these fancy technological devices if if that kid has you you can make an impact so just for just to empower teachers that they can in fact change lives and it's not just something we say it'll be something that i'd be interested in book on that's awesome it's a great place to end teacher collective efficacy teacher self-efficacy the impact that we have as educators the reason why we get up every day in the morning to do this work the reason why people are willing to stay after school for a for a live recording of a podcast to discuss this work hacking school discipline 
Brad, that was great, awesome interview. We really appreciate you joining us today on Focus ED. Is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners? I just want everyone to remember that you need to know your impact and know that you can, in fact, reach any kid. It just is going to take a whole lot more time and a whole lot more strategies, but never give up on that kid. It doesn't matter what that kid did. Don't hold a grudge. When you think of that kid that you have the most trouble with, you need to think, I can't reach that kid today. Maybe not tomorrow, but I can eventually reach that kid because some kids, they don't trust you and they don't know what it's like to have someone that cares about them. So just keep that in mind that no matter what happens, I don't care if it's the last day of school, you're going to reach that kid if you really put forth the effort and don't give up on them. It's a fantastic way to end. Brad, thank you so much. It really is about that culture of empathy and responsibility, restorative justice. It's for the students. It's for the teachers. Brad Weinstein, everyone, how about a round of applause from our studio audience? Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll see you next time on Focus ED. And don't miss the next episode. Until then, stay focused. I really wish uh, we could get Brene Brown on our show. That's a tall ask, but I'll tell you what, I don't think TJ and I have had a podcast guest in the last six months that in some way, shape, or form hasn't circled back to her and her work. Um, you talk about impact. She's making a phenomenal impact. So it's just great to hear someone else reaffirm that. Just real quick, back to your last question. She won't respond to Nathan, my co-author, either. If it makes you yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> we have an additional podcast that, that, that is just with leaders outside of education, and we try to tie it back to education. So we've been trying to reach out to her for some time. So yeah. that, that makes us feel a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. yeah she won't respond to him. Um, I, I would reach out to her, but then I feel bad if she doesn't respond to me. So I'm just letting him take the blame. <laughs> That's I'm great. Him, I'm blaming him for not getting her uh, involved with, you know, because we want, we want her to contribute towards the blog we were writing. Um, but if she connects yeah. with us, we'll 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 connect you guys as well. <laughs>